Good morning again. It's good to be with you. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 10, where we're going to consider a lengthy passage, verses 1 to 24, the the mission of the 72. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24 is our sermon text this morning. And I invite you to follow along as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him two by two into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good in Christ. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we ask for your blessing now that as we consider the Word of God given to us in the Scriptures, that we would have the discernment of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and minds, that you would keep me from error, Father, in these meditations, that you would give your people great discernment and insight, that you would encourage us, Father, to hold fast to the faith 
And that you would open our eyes, Father, to see the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and serving others in His name. We ask for your help now, God, confidently knowing that you hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our passage today is the other side of the coin, you might say, when it comes to Christian discipleship. Last week, we saw how discipleship is costly. You may remember that. Discipleship is costly. To follow Jesus, you must expect worldly rejection, endure earthly hardship, and pursue kingdom priorities. Discipleship, in other words, is costly. Today's passage, however, looks at the other side of that coin. Here we see that while discipleship is certainly costly, there is also great blessing for those who minister in Jesus' name. For those who follow Jesus, the world's rejection is countered by heaven's security. Along with earthly hardship, there's also great spiritual provision. And in pursuing those kingdom priorities, there's the incredible privilege of sharing in Jesus' joy. That's really the heart of this passage, friends. To follow Jesus is truly a remarkable blessing. And in that sense, our text completes the picture of discipleship. It's the other side of the coin that rounds out the picture. Endure the cost. Yes, that's true. But also receive the blessing and the joy and the privilege of bearing Jesus' name. As we look at the text, friends, you can see right away in verse 1 that the context of this passage is mission. The context of this passage is mission. Jesus appoints 72 messengers to go out preaching. That should sound familiar to you. Remember back at the start of chapter 9, Jesus appointed the 12 apostles and sent them out to minister in His name. Now, Jesus expands the mission from 12 to 72. And that means Jesus' message is being taken even farther out into the world. And that message, friends, is what Jesus calls the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus Himself began to preach back in chapter 4. And it's what He commissions these messengers to proclaim here. In fact, notice the repetition of the kingdom in verses 9 and 11. You see it there in your Bibles. The message is the good news of the kingdom of God. It's the good news that God's redemptive rule is breaking into this age. It's the good news that all of God's promises are coming to pass. And they're coming to pass in this man Jesus. So as the 72 go out, that's their mission. They're sent out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. For our purposes, brothers and sisters, the way we understand this passage is by paying attention to the features that define this kingdom mission. What are the privileges attached to ministering in Jesus' name? That's what we need to pay attention to. What are the blessings that come from bearing Jesus' message? Well, Luke gives us four things to notice. Four features, you could say, of kingdom mission that honors the Lord. The first feature comes in verses 1-4 to where we hear the call to divine dependence. It's the first feature of kingdom mission. It's a call to divine dependence. We've already noted how verse 1 expands the mission from 12 to 72. These 72 messengers will be Jesus' representatives. They're moving from town to town, preparing the way for Jesus to come. 
That's a high calling, isn't it? That's not a mission that you should take lightly. In fact, it's not even a mission that the 72 can accomplish on their own. In fact, notice Jesus' first instructions to them. Verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. So Jesus envisions the towns of Israel like a field. And these fields are ripe. They are white for the harvest. But there's one problem. There aren't enough laborers. There aren't enough messengers going out bearing the good news of the kingdom. So at this point, you might expect Jesus to say, rally your friends. Recruit more people to get involved. Let's let's bump up the numbers so that we can have more people. Recruit some folks. That would make sense. But as He so often does, Jesus hits us with the unexpected. He doesn't say recruit people. Jesus says pray. Pray for God to raise up more workers. You see, at the most fundamental level, the mission of the kingdom is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on the messengers. The mission is dependent upon God, who is the Lord of the harvest. The mission, friends, depends upon God. Indeed, notice whose harvest it is. Verse 2, it's His harvest. God's harvest. Not your harvest. So if we need more workers, then we pray and ask God. And so from the outset, Jesus wants His messengers to understand that the call to ministry is really a call to depend upon God. The work is always beyond us, friends. Our numbers are always too few. Our efforts are always too weak. And that's why every fruitful Gospel work begins not with us and with our strategies, but with humble prayer that depends upon God. As Jesus continues, you can quickly see another reason why we need this dependence. Not only is the harvest plentiful, but at the same time, the fields are also dangerous. Notice verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, to make the rather obvious observation, wolves eat lambs. If you didn't know, wolves eat lambs. So this is perhaps not the best image to inspire confidence in people that you are sending out on mission. Can't can't we be the wolves, Jesus, just this one time? But think about it from Jesus' perspective. When He sends them out as lambs, what is Jesus saying about Himself? He's saying that He's the Good Shepherd. Lambs can't lead themselves, remember? Lambs can't send themselves out. So if the lambs are being sent out even in the midst of wolves, it must be because the Good Shepherd is going to care for them. It must be because the Good Shepherd watches over His sheep. And so now we begin to see Jesus' wisdom, don't we? Think about it, friends. If messengers went out with the ferocity and strength of wolves, what is something that they are least likely to do? Depend on God. Pray. So when Jesus says, I'm sending you out as lambs, He's reminding them, you need the Good Shepherd, and that's Me. Lambs depend on the Shepherd or they're lost. And that's the point, friends. Don't try to do this on your own. The mission requires dependence. Dependence. But just in case we're slow learners, which I am, Jesus makes sure we don't miss His point. Verse 4. 
Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet nobody on the road. Now on one level, that's a picture of urgency. There's no time to delay. Just get to it, Jesus says. Go. Don't go home to pack. Don't take extra stuff. And when somebody says hi, just keep going. It's a picture of urgency. And that urgency then tells us that we need to depend entirely on the Lord. The messengers don't need to be burdened with extra stuff. They don't need to take worldly concerns. Instead, they go out with complete dependence upon what God alone can give. Brothers and sisters, one of the takeaways of these verses is that we ought to recognize how countercultural Jesus expects His people to be even when it comes to ministry. Even when it comes to serving the Lord. We tend to think that ministry for the Lord goes best when we have just the right resources and all the necessary training and perhaps even the sharpest strategy. And while resources and strategy are not wrong, they're no substitute for dependence upon God. In fact, sometimes things like resources and strategy actually keep us from dependence. We can look at all the stuff that we have for serving the Lord, whether it's serving in the church or serving in a ministry of evangelism or even serving by raising our children. We can look at all the stuff that we have and we can then think, you know what, I got this. I'm pretty well equipped. I know what I'm doing. And over time, we forget what Jesus lays out here. We forget prayer. When was the last time you prayed for the Lord to help you as a parent? We forget prayer. We forget that on our best days, we're just sheep. Like on our best days, we're just lambs in the midst of wolves. And therefore, we need a shepherd to guide us and to keep us from danger. And so the, the, the call here from the Lord in verses 1-4 to four is not hypothetical. It's not hyperbolic. This is Jesus, how He really expects you to live and to minister in His name with this sense of dependence upon what God alone can provide. Lord, I've got no money, no bag, no knapsack, no sandals. I've just got You. That's what Jesus says your life ought to look like. It's a call to this kind of divine dependence. And that's the first feature we should note of this kingdom mission. As we come to verse 5, we find the second feature of the mission. This will take us all the way to verse 16, and it's the provision of Jesus' authority. The provision of Jesus' authority. In these verses, Jesus instructs His messengers on how they will be received when they go. There are instructions about being received in people's homes, verses 5 to 7. There's instructions about being received in an entire town, verses 8 and 9. Some of these instructions sound strange to us because we're not familiar with the culture of Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, you would expect to find religious teachers traveling a circuit in a particular area, and as they traveled, there were these expectations of hospitality to be given to certain religious teachers. But as you read these verses in, in Luke 10, it's, it's very clear that Jesus is concerned with more than cultural practice. It's very clear that Jesus' messengers are more than traveling religious teachers. They come with a message that rests on the authority of Jesus Himself. Notice how it plays out in the Lord's instructions. First of all, notice the message that they preach in verse 5. They preach peace 
Jesus says. Peace. What is this peace that they proclaim? Well, it's more than the absence of conflict. Peace here is a summary of the blessing that comes to those who receive the gospel of the kingdom. So think back to the very beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 2, when the angels announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds. Do you remember what the message was? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Peace with those with whom God is well pleased. So the messengers in Luke 10 are continuing the line of witness that began with the angels in chapter 2. To announce peace is to proclaim that God's salvation is at hand. It's to proclaim that God's promises are coming to pass in and through Jesus. It's more than hospitality. It's more than goodwill. It's more than hello. Peace is the declaration of the good news. And therefore, therefore, it's an authoritative summons for people to respond. It's not an optional message. It's an authoritative message. There's an even clearer indication of Jesus' authority though in verse 9. Look again, Jesus is instructing His messengers what to do when they enter a town. And He makes a very significant statement. Verse 9. Heal the sick in the town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Friends, this is one of the most important points to remember when we're reading the Gospels. Notice the connection here between action and word. Between deed and declaration. They go together. As the messengers heal the sick, what else are they to do? To proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. And that connection is key. Remember, this is taking place before Jesus' death and resurrection. So the climactic sign that God is at work, the resurrection of His Son, that climactic sign has not yet occurred. How then will God confirm the good news of the kingdom? How can people be sure that the kingdom of God has truly come near to them? Through the confirming testimony of mighty works done in Jesus' name. So it goes like this, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the crowd would say, how can we believe you? And Jesus and His followers say to the lame person, get up. Okay, now I see the kingdom of God. It's come near in and through Jesus. It's all rooted then in the authority of Christ. His authority is proclaimed in His Word, and then the authority of that Word is confirmed in mighty deeds. And just to remind you, if you're thinking, then why don't we do mighty deeds today when we preach? It's because we're on the other side of the resurrection, friends. The mighty deed that we say look to is an empty tomb. So the, the deeds confirm the declaration. And it's all rooted in Jesus' authority. Now, so far, Jesus' instructions have focused on the positive response that they'll receive. The messengers should stay with those who welcome them. They should eat what people provide. It's all been positive. What about the towns that reject the good news of the kingdom? What about people who don't want to receive the gospel? What then? Well, beginning in verse 10, Jesus addresses that reality of rejection. And He does so with the same instructions that He gave to the apostles back in chapter 9. So look again, verse 11. 
a town rejects the gospel, Jesus says, so what do you do? Well, you go out in the streets and you wipe the dust off your feet and you say, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You sent, it, it's, a, it's a very public warning of judgment. That's what it is. You may reject the king, but still, you will come under his rule. You will one day bow your knee before him. That's the sense of verse 11. Wiping the dust off your feet is a way of saying you're accountable for your response and you will face the king. And friends, it's this sense of accountability before God that informs the next few verses, which are some of Jesus' strongest warnings in the entire Gospel. Notice verse 12. Jesus says that towns that reject the Gospel, that reject the good news, will face judgment worse than Sodom. Now, you know that in the Old Testament, Sodom is the pinnacle of wickedness. Sodom stood for the worst of pagan opposition to God. If you want to see human depravity in its ugliest form in the Old Testament, where do you look? Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, Jesus says, towns that reject the Gospel will fare worse than Sodom. Now that's alarming. That's alarming. But then Jesus starts naming names. Chorazin and Bethsaida, verse 13. Even Tyre and Sidon, again, wicked pagan cities. Tyre and Sidon were were wicked and pagan. Even Tyre and Sidon will face a more bearable judgment than Chorazin and Bethsaida. Capernaum, verse 15, the place where Jesus did the majority of His his miracles. Capernaum, your fate is not in heaven, it's in the grave with the wicked. What's going on here? Why is Jesus issuing these kind of woes? Well, friends, it's an example of what we sometimes call prophetic reversal. Prophetic reversal. It's very common to find in the Old Testament prophets. Some of you are are doing the Bible reading plan right now and you're probably reading through Jeremiah and you'll hear it all the time in Jeremiah where the prophets turn things unexpectedly upside down. It's, It's prophetic reversal. It's where God takes an expected pattern and He turns it around so that the people who are too complacent get the worst warning. And that's what happens here. So imagine being a citizen of Capernaum. Capernaum's an Israelite town. You've got rabbis. You've got a synagogue. You've got a town that at least attempts to uphold the law of God. I mean, sure, your town has some issues, but at least Capernaum is not like Tyre. At least we're not as bad as those pagans who live in Sodom. And then Jesus hits you with the reversal. Wrong, Jesus says. You're worse. You're worse. Your situation will be worse because you've received the greater judgment. That's the principle at this point, friends. The greater level of revelation that you receive, the greater your expectation of judgment. The greater your revelation, the greater your expectation of judgment. Capernaum saw greater things than Tyre. Bethsaida heard more truth than Sodom. And therefore, those cities that witnessed the Lord Jesus with their own eyes only to reject Him, those cities will find the day of judgment to be worse than even Sodom and Gomorrah. 
How does eternal judgment get worse, you ask? I don't know. That's God's prerogative, not mine. It'll be worse. So verse 16 really sums up the entire section. And it it, it explains why there's this expectation of judgment. Look again, verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Notice the chain of authority. Jesus' messengers come with Jesus' authority. And Jesus speaks with the Father's authority. So to reject the messenger is to reject Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. That's why the mission is so urgent. That's why the warning is so strong. The 72 are not traveling religious teachers. They are emissaries of the King. And the King will have your allegiance because He's the Lord of all the earth. You know, the the last few sermons in, in, in Luke here, we've talked a lot about the cost of discipleship. To follow Jesus means you count the cost and you bear the cross in following Him. There's a cost to discipleship. But do you know what has an an even greater cost than following Jesus? Rejecting Him. Ignoring His Gospel. Thinking that you'll be fine on your own. That your life's not really that bad. That at least you don't do the things that all those other pagan people do and that you don't particularly need a Savior, thank you very much. Friends, nothing in life has a greater cost than that, than rejecting Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian today, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus' death to save you, if you're not a Christian today, then, then I plead with you to hear the warning from God's Word. There is a grave danger ahead for those who hear the gospel and reject it. It's a grave danger ahead. The road that you're on, listen, if you're not a Christian, if you're, if you're hearing the good news and saying, nah, no thanks, I'll pass, maybe another day. The road that you're on leads to destruction. It leads to hell. And the only way of life is found by humbling yourself, confessing your sin before the Holy God, and then entrusting your eternal destiny to Jesus Christ. Friends, that's not a decision that a church can make for you. It's not a choice your parents can make for you. It's a choice that only comes in your life by grace through the Holy Spirit. And you should pray right now and plead with God to give you eyes to see Christ and to receive Him. If you're hearing the Gospel this morning, you are under the judgment of God. And you don't know Him. If if you don't know Christ and you're hearing the Gospel, the judgment of God rests upon you. The Scriptures tell us that only Jesus' blood is enough to cleanse sinners from their sin. The Scriptures tell us that only Jesus' resurrection is enough to make us right before God. If you're hearing that truth today, then that means you're accountable before God for how you respond to that greater revelation. The, The church can't decide to bring you in. Mom and dad can't decide to make you a Christian. And so I'm pleading with you with all the urgency that Jesus tells us we have to have in these verses. I am pleading with you, believe the good news that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way for sinners to be saved. Turn from your sin. 
Turn from your sin. It will lead you to hell, friend. Turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says you will be saved. Jesus' word is authoritative. That's what we see. And that means His word right now is demanding all of us to respond. All of us. As we continue on in the text, we see the third feature of the kingdom mission. Verses 17 to 20. It's the comfort of God's protection. The comfort of God's protection. The messengers return in verse 17, and and they're overjoyed at what they have experienced. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And once again, we see the authority of Jesus at the heart of this mission. The messengers proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, and in Jesus' name, they even drove out unclean spirits. Truly then, the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself affirms that the kingdom has come. Notice verse 18 where Jesus says that He saw Satan fall like lightning. What's the point of that? Well, it's that the ministry of Jesus, both His own ministry and the ministry of His messengers, the ministry of Jesus indicates not only the arrival of the kingdom, but the beginning of the end for the evil one. Verse 18 is a symbolic picture of the evil one being cast down, of his authority being broken. And then verse 19 is a description of the results. Serpents and scorpions picture the danger of a fallen world, a world where the enemy's power holds sway. But not any longer, verse 18 says. Not any longer, Jesus tells us. The enemy's power has been broken. And Jesus' followers have the confidence of Jesus' victory. Now, to be sure, there's still battles to come for the people of God as they stand against the devil. But overall, the war is won. That's the point. The war is won. That's what Jesus is saying. Through Jesus' ministry, Satan has been defeated and even Jesus' messengers experience a taste of that victory. Even the demons are subject to us, they say. So the messengers come back rejoicing in the authority of Jesus. And then Jesus does something very remarkable and very important. Verse 20, Jesus redirects their joy. He redirects their joy. He calls them to rejoice not in what they have experienced, but in who they are. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's not power that matters most, Jesus says. It's not power that matters most. It's your position. It's your identity as God's children. Jesus speaks of their names being written in heaven's book. The image is of a a citizenship role. Or, or even better, a family tree, a family record. Those whose names are written in heaven's book belong to God the Father. They are members of His family, co-heirs with Jesus, sons and daughters of the King, and citizens of God's kingdom. Rejoice in that, Jesus says. 
Don't rejoice in the power that you experience. Rejoice in the position that you have received as the family of God. And it gets better. Since the book is kept in heaven, Satan cannot touch it. Remember, Satan's been cast out of heaven, verse 18. And where's the book kept? In heaven. Right? The evil one can't get up there to scratch your name out of the record. The evil one can't sneak in and take an eraser and remove your name and say, ha, I got at least one. He can't do that. Your standing is secured. That's, that's the real joy, Jesus says. It's not the experience of spiritual power. It's the privilege of a spiritual identity as the children of God. You see, this is, the really the, this is really the central takeaway from the whole passage. It's easy to read these verses and, and get caught up in whether or not healings occur today or, or wonder why we haven't experienced the same kind of power that Jesus' messengers have experienced. It's easy to read the, the text and start asking all those questions. But friends, those questions miss the real reason for joy according to Jesus. The real joy is that we belong to God. And whatever happens in this life, it cannot change who we are in the Father's eyes. Whatever we face on earth, it cannot alter one bit your identity as a child of God if you belong to Him. Listen, we may lose everything that we hold dear. Our families, our livelihood, our citizenship, our physical health, even our lives. And still, still, they take everything from you. And your name will still shine as bright as ever in heaven's book. Friends, that's joy. That's a reason for joy, Jesus says. Forget casting out demons. You belong to God. It's incredible. There's no greater confidence than this. There's no greater source of joy. So perhaps you've come to church today weary or discouraged. Perhaps you've come just worn out. Perhaps you've been looking at your Christian life and compared to other people's Christian lives, it just, your life just seems to lack punch. It seems to be missing that thing that you really think will bring joy or comfort. And if that's you, friends, I would encourage you to hear the Lord Jesus at this point. Joy is not found in what we do or in what we experience. Joy flows from who we are. And if you look for joy in what you do or what you experience, you'll always be looking. You'll never find it. Joy flows from who we are. Joy is an identity blessing, not an activity blessing. Joy flows from who God has made us to be. To say it another way, to say it another way, if you're discouraged today, don't do the one thing that is guaranteed to not help you. Don't look inward. If you're discouraged, don't look in. Don't look for encouragement inside of yourself. Look outward to the Gospel and to the grace of God in Christ. A God who has written your name so securely in His book, in His family tree, that not even the devil himself can erase it. Friends, that's remarkable. That's an incredible level of comfort. There's no greater comfort than that. And it's the comfort of God's protection. That brings us right into the last feature of this kingdom mission. It's what closes the passage, verses 21 to 24. Jesus calls His disciples to savor the joy of sovereign grace. The joy of sovereign grace. It's Jesus' turn to rejoice now. 
And he does so in verse 21, breaking out in joyful praise to God the Father. But it's the reason for Jesus' praise that is so significant. Listen to Jesus' joy, verse 21. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So did you catch the reason for Jesus' praise? Why is Jesus joyful? Because God saves whom He will save. That's why Jesus is joyful. Because God reveals His truth not to the wise and the powerful, not to those who are sure of themselves and confident in their own abilities. No, God reveals His truth to little children. That is, to the least and lowly in the world's eyes. God reveals Himself to those who have nothing to offer except their profound need and their absolute inability. That's who God delights to save. Little children. And amazingly, amazingly, that sovereignty of God is the reason for Jesus' joy. It's the reason for Jesus' praise. And so, before we go one step further, let's just pause and note this fact. According to Jesus, according to Jesus, divine sovereignty is not a reason for argument or debate. It's not an idea or a philosophical position for you to defend. No, divine sovereignty is a reason for worship. It's a reason for joy. It's a reason to lift up your praise to God who graciously reveals His truth to whomever He will, even the least likely, even sinners like you and me. Listen to me, friends. If you affirm the doctrine of election, but it doesn't produce joy in your heart, then it's very likely that you don't understand the doctrine. If you like to get into it with people, if you're quick to get into it with people and argue about divine sovereignty, but you're slow to praise God, then there's some kind of disconnect between your head and your heart. If we want to be like Jesus, in other words, if we want to be like Jesus, we can't simply affirm that God reveals and conceals according to His will. Even the devil knows that God reveals and conceals. Even the devil assents to that doctrine, but the devil doesn't rejoice in it. So if we want to be like Jesus, we can't simply affirm these things. We've got to rejoice in that truth as well. And listen, I know that divine sovereignty is controversial among Christians, but I'll tell you something that a wise pastor once said that I thought was really, really, really helpful. Do you know the way that you make the case for divine sovereignty? It's not by out-arguing people. It's by out-rejoicing them. (laughs) Out-rejoicing them. So if we want to be a church that affirms the sovereignty of God and salvation and makes a case for that, the way we do that is with joyful lives. Not with well-marshaled arguments, but with joy. With joy that reaches out to the lost and makes it almost inconceivable that a people would be so full of happiness that God saves whomever He will save. Let's be that kind of church. we got to rejoice in the truth. Still, Jesus is not finished with His praise. Verse 22, He goes further. And Jesus declares how He is the one through whom God's sovereign will is accomplished. Verse 22, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Friends, that is as clear as Jesus will get on this side of the cross. 
Who is the king over God's kingdom? I am, Jesus says. I am. For the Father has given all things to me. Notice how the last line, though, brings the sovereignty and connects it with Jesus. How is the Father made known on earth? Through the sovereign work of God the Son. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So, the Father and the Son are mutually and exclusively known by one another. If you want to know one, you must do so through the other. The Father and the Son mutually and exclusively known through one another. And since Jesus is the only Son of God, He alone is able to reveal the Father. And Jesus does this according to His will. Don't miss the language, friends. It's right there in your Bible at the end of the verse. Who is it that knows the Father? Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. It's the Son's prerogative to reveal God. Friends, there's a world of theology in that verse. But the essential piece that demands our attention is this. In order to know the Father, you must come to Him through the Son. In order to know the Father, you must come to Him through the Son. And that process, listen to me, that process of knowing the Father through the Son, the Bible has only one word to describe that process of knowing the Father through the Son. Only one word. And that word is grace. It's grace. In His grace, the Father reveals His truth to little children. In His grace, the Son reveals the Father to whomever He will. If you know the truth today, if you're a Christian, if you rejoice in the Gospel of Christ, then the Word that stands as the overarching theme of your life is grace. Sovereign, almighty, amazing, filled with joy, inexpressible grace. That's why the passage ends where it does. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus tells the disciples how blessed they are to see the things they see. It's grace. Isaiah, David, Jeremiah, they didn't see it. Jesus' disciples see it. And they see it by grace. Brothers and sisters, this is the great blessing of knowing and serving Jesus Christ. It's to know each day that you are a recipient of sovereign grace. I pray that we learn to share in Jesus' joy. The world has far too many miserable Christians. I pray that we learn to share in Jesus' joy. Discipleship is costly. There's rejection and hardship to be endured. And there are these lofty principles of the kingdom that reorient our entire lives. Discipleship is costly. Far more costly than we can even imagine. But in the end, is there any greater privilege than this? Than to be known by God. To have received His grace. To share in Jesus' joy. And to rest in the reality that our names are written in heaven's book. Is there any greater joy than this? I don't know of any. That's a blessing that cannot be described. And friends, it's a blessing that ought to stir our hearts to continue on with the mission of proclaiming that God's salvation has come in Jesus Christ. So I'm, I'm, I'm calling us as a church, I'm praying with God and pleading that we would be a people who rejoice with Jesus. Who rejoice with Jesus. And then that we would carry on. Carry on in the work of His name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us now, we ask. Help us to have eyes to see. Help us, Father, to see the great blessing and joy and grace that there is in serving Christ 
Yes, the cost is high. Yes, there's rejection and hardship to be endured. And yet, in the midst of all of those things, Father, we know this, that our names are written in heaven's book. They cannot be taken away. We know that there's joy in knowing the God who saves according to His will. Oh God, help us be a people who are filled with joy. Help us, Father, to be a people who are utterly amazed that we would know You, God Almighty, through Your Son, in whose name we pray.